Edwin Lindo runs Estelita's Library, a new social justice-focused community bookstore and library located inside the Station Wine Bar in Seattle's North Beacon Hill neighborhood. We discuss growing up in San Francisco's Mission District, attending law school, and finding liberation through struggle and activism. Enjoy. What's up, everybody? I go by the name of Domo. And I go by the name of Yoshiko. We sit with entrepreneurs and artists across disciplines to share their stories, insight, and gems. Their journey will inspire you to think about community and your own narrative, how it shapes who you are and what your legacy will be. You're listening to No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. No Blueprint. You are listening to No Blueprint. And Pops is in the room, too. He came up to visit. Yes. Yeah. So let's speaking of pops, let's go let's go way back. Yeah. Let's go way back. Where did your parents grow up? And what did they do? Yeah, so my dad grew up in Chinandega, Nicaragua okay. until he was about 12. Grew up in Nicaragua and then came to the United States. First came to LA and then they went up to San Francisco where he spent the rest of his life. Uh, he's been in San Francisco for close to 50 some odd years. Wow. Though we got pushed out, gentrification, increased rents, we got kicked out of the house we lived in for 30 some odd years. Wow. And ended up moving to Oakland. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Mom grew up in El Salvador. She was born in El Salvador, but came to San Francisco and that's where my parents met. I've only been to Nicaragua. Uh. So the, the, the story of my parents is they they separated, but my dad raised me by himself yeah. from the age of seven on. Wow. And so a lot of the culture, as much as I, I say definitely that I'm Salvadorian and Nicaraguense, mm. the culture of Nicaragua was, was dominant. Mm. The food, the music. And so got to visit Nicaragua a lot more. Nice. Yeah. And, and so grew up in San Francisco? Grew up in San Francisco, born and raised in San Francisco. We also call it Frisco. Yep. Yep. And we, we have a lot of pride in our city. Absolutely. Uh, 415. Represent. Yes, Bay yeah, Area. Bay Area. Bay Area. You know, a little E40. You know, keep uh, the sneak. Keep the sneak. You know, Messy Marv, Mr. all that. Fag. <laughs> right, yeah. all that, all that, all that. Okay, okay. That's legit. Tell me what that was like growing up in pre-gentrified San Francisco. Well, the, the best way I can put it, at least from what I can remember mm-hmm. as a youngster maneuvering through the streets and just growing up there, is you you could especially growing up in the mission district Mm -hmm. which is where we spent a lot of our time and the mission district was predominantly latinx latino latina i mean in many ways you couldn't order food or you couldn't buy something unless you spoke some spanish right and you did like at some point there were asian folks that physically you would say oh they're they're asian and Mm -hmm. it may not be able to determine what part of asia but you're like, they're definitely not speaking Spanish right. to me. And then you give them the money and they say, thank you. Come next time. I hope your family's doing well. Good to see you again. All in Spanish. Right. And so, all, you know, and mm-hmm. now you're seeing that the exchange of culture is, is incredible and dominant. I could maneuver the streets of San Francisco without necessarily having to be in spaces where I was a evident minority. Mm-hmm. Or there were no white folks at all. Right. And and I remember at some point realizing, oh, this is a thing. I mean, the middle school I went to was 96% black. Wow. 
there was four white students, maybe. The elementary school I went to was predominantly Latino. I think there were two, maybe three white white students. I end up going to an all-boys private Catholic school for high school in the suburbs, and it was 97% white. Wow. And straight culture shock, you know, I walk in in the hallways and I remember one of my classmates was like, yo, do you know where to get some weed? And I'm like, I'm 14 years old. I'm like, uh, why would I know? Well, you grew up in the city and, you know, you're you're one of them. Like, you understand how this works. And I was like, I've never smoked weed in my life. Right. I still have never smoked weed. And not that it's a bad thing, but I just think it's hilarious that they asked me. Like, of all people. Because you've got to know. You're right. I have to you know. Gotta, you gotta. <laughs> I have to know. And it was kind of my first encounter face to face with like, oh, this this place. And when I mean place, I mean not only the United States but society views me as a very different phenotype, right. very different thing mm-hmm. compared to what they see as normal. What did pops do for a living? From what I can remember, yeah. <laughs> just about everything. Like, uh, I remember when I was younger, he would import and export things yeah. and sell them like in little stores. People wanted to buy stuff like from Central America or from right. Asia or from you name it. And then that, I remember, led to us going to flea markets and selling at flea markets Absolutely. on the weekends. Entrepreneurship. Uh, yeah. Early. Uh, and then him becoming an insurance salesman. Yeah. Down on 22nd and Valencia <laughs> in the city. And then he got injured, couldn't work at least what we consider a regular job, tried to do work with the elderly as a bus driver for a local nonprofit. And they liked him so much that the nonprofit was like, you're spending too much time talking to our clients yeah. and servicing them and you're not doing, quote unquote, doing your job. And they mm. let him go. They fired him because he was too nice. Wow. And so it just shows like when, when you're when you're actually doing what's right, folks aren't necessarily happy. Absolutely. So and he was also a car salesman. Um, my dad just he's renaissance he's, man yeah he's a hustler jack of all trades um, <laughs> and I think in many ways I learned I, I learned that trait because he he did it yeah right uh, by himself on a single income and got me through the schools showed up to every one of my baseball games my practices my basketball games Nice. And I got to say that wasn't true for my classmates. Right. right? Their parents weren't there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I and I want to model that. Uh, I mean, you see me all the time with Estella. Yes. Right on my chest or oh. on the stroller. And I think I, I I got that from pops. Yeah. I want her to know that she's unconditionally loved. Absolutely. By my presence. Absolutely. And some people, it's interesting. Just speaking of the baby, mm. I have people that are like, oh. It's it's babysitting day, and I'm like, no, that's my no, it's not babysitting. Right, this is my daughter. Like babysitting means you give it to someone else right. at the end of the day. Like, this is every day. Right, absolutely. Um, and and rightfully so. Like, my partner has sacrificed so much to get to where she is. Absolutely. And she, in her chief resident year, was pregnant. Up to 39 weeks pregnant wow. was doing surgery. Holding it down. 
had this baby, went back and finished residency, and I'm like, that's unbelievable. Like that's, that, that's magic. Uh, and the least I can do is is take care of our child. Absolutely. Um, and then getting the traits from pops, figuring out how to piece the things together to to make it work. Absolutely. Because. Uh, I can't imagine what a world for me would look like without him there. Right. What was it like growing up in a multi-generational household with grandma? Yeah. I mean, grandma, just as much as pop, took care of me, mm-hmm. right? Because pops being a single a single dude, he definitely went out. Yeah. And he, and, But the thing is, he also took me with him. So okay. I learned how to play pool. <laughs> nice. I learned how to play cards. Nice. I learned how to play chess. That's and we would play for $20 a game, or at least that's what I saw. Yeah. Ping pong. Like, wherever he went, he would take me. But my grandmother, whether I got back from school or after practice, I mean, she was always i mean her rule is if you walk into my house you're eating mm-hmm. there was always food on the table Absolutely. Um, and it's that generational knowledge of what the world looks like how you need to maneuver in the world mm-hmm. but just a comfort that there's a matriarch that has held it down for so long she had eight kids wow my dad's the oldest and she took care of, of all of them wow that's a lot of kids but i mean she, yeah. they were all in the house at yeah. some point Wow. She did the same for many of her grandchildren, including myself. And so I give her a lot of credit. Yeah. UW Law? Went to UW Law. Okay. Why? Uh, Why UW? Because they offered me the most money. Hey. Yeah. When you grow up with no money, you're also very astute when it comes to figuring out the finances. Absolutely. And I had opportunities to go to other places, but they they had they had presented the best offer. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a great school. It was top 20 in the country. And I, and I said, let's do it. Why law? At the moment, uh, mind you, I, I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. Absolutely. Uh, and so the consciousness has developed over time. But at the time, it was very superficial. Mm-hmm. Though I think grounded in something that I believed, but I, I hadn't explored yet, which was, I want to be able to walk in a room and have people listen to the words that I'm saying and say, that person knows what they're talking about. And the words that I would be saying would be in advocacy and in furthering the the struggles of our community. But that's also very like me-centered approach is mm. I wanted this so that you respected me, right? It wasn't right. like this collective understanding of like, this isn't about you, mm. right? You, you are just a representative. Absolutely. I hadn't understood that at the time. How did you come to understanding that? After graduating law school, did a lot of community organizing, mm. and in different communities, I had this mindset, because this is what law school does to you, this mindset that you have the answer. Right. And if you don't, you're going to solve it. And it wasn't until I was in these circles and the elders would pull me aside and say, Edwin, look, we're proud of you doing this. Mm-hmm. You succeeded in getting this degree but do not be mistaken it does not mean you have the answer and i and i was you know in my mind i'm like no but like i'm smart I, Shot to I'm, the ego. I'm really yeah i'm really smart what are you talking about <laughs> got this paper it's just... and they said well if you had the answer why are we still in these problems mm. and it's the truth mm. and i had to sit on that for a long time and realize my law degree is not the answer 
Even my mind is not the answer. These are just tools to support the work to get closer to the answer. But the answer comes from those that are most oppressed, that are closest to the struggle, and that are closest to the issues that we are fighting against. And if we aren't willing to just see our skill set as just that, as a as a tool that can be used at times and and not used most of the time, then our ego definitely is in the way. Absolutely. And I had to, I had to let go and say, okay, I'm going to walk into these spaces first, not as a legal trained individual, right. but as a body that's walking into the space with the want and need to support the work. Absolutely. And and I got to the point where I didn't even say that. I had these skills. Yeah. I would just say I'm a person. If the if an issue came up, they say, yeah, you know, we're looking for someone who can do the research or that has access to legal resources. I'd raise my hand and say, yeah, you know, I I know some folks. Yeah. But I also probably burned some bridges because I was like, you know, I can mm. do this and I can do that and I know this person and I have these skills. Yeah. And that probably turned off a lot of people, rightfully so. Right. And so it was a it was a progress, and it was time and a learning for me. After law school, you went into these different communities. Where did you go? Where did you stay here? Did you? Uh, well, I was in. I went back home, so I was in San Francisco. Okay. And I ended up because I thought, well, I need to quote unquote make it. Mm-hmm. I ended up working in-house for a tech company in Silicon Valley Mm. doing a lot of their business and legal work Mm. and was making quite a bit of money and it was very good Mm. and I was like well this is cool I'm making six figures I'm 25 years old and ended up buying a house where my dad lives and saving some money to just be able to live here on out but this was also during the time I mean in law school Trayvon Martin right thereafter Mike Brown mm-hmm. and the names just continued and in San Francisco there was a slew of names within a year and a half Alex Nieto Luis Congora Pat Mario Woods mm-hmm. Jessica Nelson police were just killing people like yeah. innocent, like innocent people getting shot and killed, either running away from the police, which we've seen with Antoine, and the story was just continually happening in San Francisco. And this is like 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. and so I'd been at this job for a year and a half or so, and I was like, I don't know if I can sit here and continue to watch these videos see the people out on the street and not go out there myself right because that initially wasn't on my mind it was like well maybe i can change it from the inside maybe if i make a lot of money you know (laughs) i can change it and so many and the reality is you you can't make enough money to change it no so that's one two the inside is only going to change as much as it wants to let you change it and and three we just have to be frank that it's just a job. Right. That's not changing. The, me working in that tech company was not going to change the world. Right. But, you know, people are like, well, it's representation and you're in there and it's great. And it's like, yeah, that's great. And there's probably people that would love to do that job for the rest of their life. Absolutely. 
But I sat there looking at these protests happening, looking at these folks getting shot and killed. And I said, what's going to happen after 10 years? I'm going to look back and I'm going to say, I've only done one thing. And that was make this company a lot of money. Yeah. That's right. And it's not even my money. Right. And is that all I'm going to be able to tell to my children or to my grandchildren? And I said, I just, I just don't want to do that. Yeah. And so I started going to the protests. <laughs> I started going into the streets. And thankfully, the job was flexible enough to where they knew what I was doing. <laughs> and they didn't say anything about it. And I was doing that for another year and a half or so. Was building with the community, trying to provide as much support or any skills I could. And then the the Alex Nieto situation happened where in San Francisco, this 29-year-old who grew up around the corner from me, essentially a neighbor, mm. knew our family, his family knew our family. He was up on Bernal Heights Hill eating his burrito. He had a taser because he was getting ready to go to work as a bouncer at a local bar and someone who just moved into the neighborhood a gentrifier calls the police and say there's a Mexican with a red jacket and a gun and the police come up full guns blaring two police cars up on this hill that is a no access road they just went around the fence and started driving up towards him open the doors point the gun at him through the door crack and said put your hands up mm. guns pointed at them in their testimony, they claimed that he's, he took out his taser, pointed it at him or at them, and said, no, you put your hands up. With a taser. With a taser. Mm -hmm. Mind you, he's in college to become a uh, youth probation officer. Wow. Knows the law. Knows the law. At least understands understand. yeah, law yeah, yeah. enforcement. Yeah. And that he would have the gall... And, and really the craziness to take his taser out and point it at, at the police. With the backdrop of unarmed kids being yeah. shot for the last right. hour of many years. And they shot him, just shot at him 56 times. Jesus Christ. And they shot him so much that one officer reloaded his clip. Wow. And emptied it again. And that one hit too close. Jesus. And was like, man, I... I've seen him like I was I mean, we're not best friends we didn't hang out a lot but I would see him in the community like I knew him right and I, we were the same age the hat he was wearing in the picture was the same hat that I had mm. and I'm like this law degree mm. can't stop bullets no and so am I gonna be here saying well if I just behave <laughs> Maybe mine will be spared. My life will be spared. Yeah. Or are we going to find a way to stop this from happening again? Absolutely. Because the absurdity is is going to continue. And that's when I like put down this whole idea of the law degree being the answer. Mm. And saying, if this law degree can't stop a bullet, what good is it? Right. Because that's what we're up against now. Is state-sanctioned terror. Right. And if I wave this thing and say, hey, don't shoot me. I got a law degree, though. I have a law degree. <laughs> and they're going to shoot me and say, we thought it was a gun. Right. And I'm, I'm, it's, it's uh, hyperbolic, but the reality is, it's not too far from the truth. Right. Oh, you, you wanted to be educated. Right. 
Seattle. Mark your calendars for Saturday, August 11th at 6 p.m. No Blueprint will be recording a live podcast centered around coffee at the Northwest Film Forum. Stay tuned and visit our website for more details coming soon. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. I want to talk to you about how you started working uh, with the People's Party. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, it was... So s- soon after I came back from Standing Rock, so that was 2000, so in January 2017, uh, I was in Standing Rock for about three months in 16. Before that, I did a hunger strike in San Francisco to get the police chief fired. I was going to say, we gotta, before we get to Nikita <laughs> Oliver, let's go back, let's go back to all of this. Okay. Alex Nieto, they had, they had killed him. The police were not charged. Wow. They treated him like as though he was a investigated individual. They had shot and killed him, then put handcuffs on him, and then went into his house and searched his room for quote-unquote evidence. The dude that shot 56 times. Yeah, who did not have a gun, even though the gentrifier said that he hit. He had a gun. And then they shot and killed... What led up to the hunger strike was Luis Gongoro Pot, and that was the fourth killing in about a year and a half. Wow. And he was this homeless guy who was living in the street in San Francisco in a tent. Someone had called and said he's he's yielding this wielding this knife mm. and he's on the street, but most folks had known him as the soccer guy who was just kicking the soccer ball against against the wall. And yeah, people in the street have knives to cut their food or eat food or prepare food right. police show up mind you he had been evicted from his house recently so mm-hmm. now this is a story of gentrification what right. happens when you get displaced you right. end up in the street and in the street someone calls police show up the police get out of their car within 30 seconds of arriving they're screaming at him saying get down get down well he's Mayan he doesn't speak English mm-hmm. he doesn't speak Spanish he has no idea what they're saying. Right. He didn't get down. They shot him, I believe it was 16 times. Wow. Within three or five feet. And after that, Mama Cristina, who is the mother of Equipto, who is this brilliant, infamous Bay Area rapper, underground rapper, mm who has really stayed on the pulse of the community, has incorporated that in his music. So shout out to Equipto. And and his mom is Mama Cristina, who runs this preschool in in the Mission District. And she is this revolutionary figure and mother from Colombia that said, I can't take it anymore. They're Mm. killing our children and the children that are here who are predominantly Latino and Latina and Latinx are gonna go into the street and be fearful and I'm fearful that the next one might be them when they get older. Right. And she said, I'm going to do a hunger strike to make a political point mm. that this needs to stop. And he being her son said, well, I can't let you go on a hunger strike by yourself. I'm going to go on a hunger strike. And then he texted me asking me if this is something that I would consider. Mm. And it took some, it took a couple of days. Like I had to, pray on it I didn't know I'd never done this before I didn't mm. know what was going to happen but I also didn't think it was going to be 18 days mm-hmm. right I, I thought a political point would happen right a couple days 
media comes, they're doing a hunger strike. What's going to happen? We need a change. Right. Three others, uh, two others joined us. Selassie, who is also a Bay Area rapper, and Ike Pinkston. And we picked the day. We went out there in like regular street clothes. We didn't have water. We didn't have anything really we mm. just we said we're gonna do it yeah didn't really plan too much yeah i feel like if i would have planned i wouldn't have done it and so uh supervisor yeah I, well i was also running for supervisor at the time supervisor? so county supervisor okay yep okay uh, so dad is giving you know he's making sure i'm telling the story absolutely don't forget any, any points uh but i was running for supervisor i tell the story because it doesn't make sense for a supervisor to do a hunger strike right. or a candidate running for supervisor to do a <laughs> oh, hunger strike. protest. Okay. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we get out there and we're kind of standing. Folks bring some chairs and we sit down. So the first day my partner was there and she actually stayed with us and, and did the hunger strike for six days. Mm. And six days then passed eight days, 10 days. Right. And the whole time our demand is for the police chief, Greg Sir, to be fired. Wow. Because this had all happened under his watch. He had actually been involved in a civilian killing where a man was arrested, thrown into the back of a paddy wagon, and he was the supervising officer when the arresting officer put his foot on the guy's neck in the paddy wagon while they're driving to the precinct and he suffocates or he has heart palpitations or palpations and ends up dying wow and he never told him to stop he never and, and it was in violation of of procedure you're not supposed to when someone's laying on the ground you don't put your foot their foot your foot on their neck right we said it's time for him to go yeah. uh, and i knew the guy he's a quote-unquote nice guy right, right? He, you know we have niceties say hello but just because you're nice doesn't mean you keep your job. Right. Let me be the supervisor of five people getting shot and killed. I'm not going to keep my job. Right. And, and context also is that none of these police officers have been found guilty. But, right. Not only found guilty, they weren't even charged. Right. The district attorney didn't even wow. charge them. Wow. To go to trial. So. Which is crazy in context. That we've gotten to this point now of police officers killing unarmed men and yeah. all we're asking for now is just just charge them just so they can go to trial <laughs> please like we just want a jury to hear it that's crazy and we know what usually happens in right, that situation absolutely. right, <laughs> right but it's so bad that we're, we're we like just, begging for them can to you just charge them like can you just just admit that something something maybe right <laughs> but they can't you know, the, the DA, uh, Gascon, George Gascon, who also needs to be fired, and there's protest in mm. front of his house currently mm. to fire him or for him to resign. Mm. His whole claim is we don't have sufficient evidence to prove that these officers violated the law. Wow. Okay, cool. I know about 150,000 black people right. and brown people who are in jail right now who you do not have sufficient evidence to prove that they committed a crime, yet you still are going to bring them before a judge. Absolutely. All day, every day. Right? There's no question at all. Listen. But when it comes to finding justice in a claim against a police officer, all of a sudden, there's a whole different where's standard. The, yeah, where's the evidence? Yeah. So, 
there, there's that. And uh, long story short, the hunger strike went 18 days. They ended up shooting and killing a 21-year-old woman in her car. Wow. After we had we had ended the hunger strike on the 18th, there had been protests at City Hall that shut down the Board of Supervisors meetings, mm-hmm. like the City Council. It literally shut down. They couldn't do business for two weeks. Wow. It was getting on the front page of the news. It was on the front page of BBC World News. Mm-hmm. The pressure was coming down, all of them. And I'm not saying we did it. We mm-hmm. were just a part of an organizing effort throughout the history of San Francisco that has been moving to get this chief fired. Right. And when Jessica Nelson was shot and killed, mind you, that had happened four times already. People had been right. shot and killed. Right. And the... the the, the mayor had continually said, because he has power to uh, to fire the police chief, he said, this is the best police chief we've ever had. Wow. I would never fire him. He's the most progressive chief in the country, and we have much time and effort to be able to make the changes we need in, in this city. Mm. Well, after she was shot and killed, he was fired in 30 minutes. Wow. So I don't know what happened to this progressive chief, and he's amazing, and he's wonderful. Yeah. And what it showed us is that politics is politics. Yeah. Somebody got somebody got to go down. So someone got to go down. Yeah. And it showed us that to challenge the system, we have to be relentless and continuous and consistent mm. in that effort because the shield they put up, they they try to make it seem as though it's invincible, mm. but the reality is it's not. Right. And it went from literally one day we will not ever fire this person. To the next day, that was a terrible police chief. What's the difference? Yo, because somebody had to protect their job. Someone had to protect they had their to job. Protect their job. Yeah. And we have, but uh, I mean, were it not for the pressure of the community mm. pushing that, she could have got killed, and he still would have had his job. Right. And so they knew that there was going to be riots Absolutely. in San Francisco if something didn't change. Yeah. And that led me to, shortly thereafter, going to Standing Rock. Actually, through Nikita. Nikita was like, I'm going to go to Standing Rock. Are wow. you down to go? Wow. And I said, yeah, let's do it. Yes. She, she couldn't uh, end up going at that time. She had gone before already. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I ended up going, and I'm glad that she gave me the, the inspiration to go and, and the courage. Because I didn't know what I... I didn't know anyone. I didn't. I didn't know what I was gonna do. It wasn't a group of people. I showed up by myself. And yeah. But it was one of the most. I mean, along with the hunger strike, it was one of the most transformational experiences I had. Sure. To see that, that our folks are resisting, and the the history of our ancestors and the stories that they tell, and the indigenous folks that continue to be overlooked are strong. And trying to protect all of us. All of rights. All of like, this. Like, wait, wait, wait. You mean to tell me... <laughs> yeah. These same people who we took their land... Right. Like, stole their language. Yeah. Miseducated them. Yeah. Are the same people trying to make sure that all of us have clean water mm-hmm. and that you don't run an oil pipeline mm-hmm. <laughs> and kill kill all of our... Kill all of us? Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's crazy. And they and they did. Absolutely. Yeah. I Absolutely. mean as much as people say it wasn't a win, I mean, it showed like this country had to respond to it. Absolutely. It, it wasn't like, oh, Morton County in North Dakota, just take care of that. No, there was interesting enough, uh, ICE was there. Right. 
for sure there were federal agencies there but they were doing everything from gas trails over the camps affecting both the temperature but also the air they had snipers that were watching uh they had water hoses yeah water cannons yeah water cannons absolutely in the freezing cold uh, causing folks to get pneumonia they were throwing out these miniature kind of smoke bombs that almost blew off a young lady's arm shooting these rubber bullets like just leaving massive bruises on people's chest this was it was it it was warfare yeah without a group actually engaging in combat like there was a peaceful element to it and then there was the very volatile violent acts of of the government right and at one point you had about five thousand if not more uh, ex-military show up Mm. in their uniform and they said this is worse than what i served right I, i feel like i am in direct attack by my own government right that's crazy and, and they were conducting what they called, it was low-grade combat, which is psychological uh, control and manipulations, everything from the trails to they had floodlights on 24-7. Wow. And there's, there's a manual right. in combat that says these are the things you do mm-hmm. to psychologically break them down to the point of surrender. Right. And they tried it. And they're they're like this. This ain't working. On American citizens. On, on American, American soil. citizens. On native soil. Yeah. Yeah. That's and crazy. so, from there, I came back. I came back January first. January second, I had to start my class at the law school teaching race and law, and that was uh, quite the difference. But I'm mm. glad I did because I was able to bring those experiences into into this con- into the conversation with the students and with the class the library yeah when did that idea come to mind and how did that come to fruition yeah it was it was quick and i don't know exact date but i think it was either march or april probably march uh, of this year i was spending a lot of time at the station coffee shop with estella and i was doing work and i was like this is great i love this community all these amazing people and friends and they were watching the baby and Luis and Leona are great. And I'm like, and I come here every day and my wife's like, why are you spend so much time at the station? And I'm like, it's a good question. Cause I like it yeah. and it's culture. Yeah. And there's a, a Spanish saying that says cultura cura. Mm. And what that means is culture heals. Mm. And I needed that to heal, to be safe, to build that environment. But I thought, I also would like a space for people to talk and explore because the station also isn't necessarily that, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's a place where people get to talk and enjoy and it's busy. People come from the train in and mm-hmm. out. It gets loud and that's beautiful. Right. And I say, can we also create a space where people intentionally come together and say, let's talk about these issues of race. Absolutely. Let's talk about white supremacy. Let's talk about internalized racism. Let's talk about the imposter syndrome. Let's talk about these histories that we aren't fully aware of. And and Luis had the space at the old wine station or the old uh, station. He has the wine bar there on the weekends and said to him, hey, I have this idea for a community library 
and I'm willing to get all the books and make it work if you're if you're open to it mm -hmm. and partnering. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. So next day, put the shelves up, started piling in the books, and we opened up May 12th. Yeah. So it was quick. Yeah. <laughs> it Super was like quick. an idea to opening, and the opening we had over 200 people. Yes. And it's a membership model, so all the books there we have over a thousand. They're all cataloged, and they're social justice, uh, critical race theory, ethnic studies, study of liberation, the study of gender and identity, the study of race yeah. and, and American history are, are the focus of, of the library. And we say library because it, it is that. So all the books are cataloged. And when you come, you can't actually buy the books. Right. You become a member. Mm -hmm. And so the membership is 30 to $50. It's a sliding scale a year. And with your membership, you're able to borrow a book for two weeks at a time, return it, get another book, bring it back. And now all of a sudden we have this circulation of community books that folks can learn from. Mm -hmm. And amazingly, we have over 160 people who are members. What's the name of the library? Yeah, the, the library is called Estelita's Library. And yes. Estela is our 10-month-old our uh, baby girl who is amazing and has given us so much love in life. And we opened it in her recognition because she is a, a, a act of justice Absolutely. and an act of resilience, uh, just being present and, and being with her. So the, the memberships are a huge way to sustain us. And we do events like July 14th. Yes. We are having salsa and sangria. Yes. And if you missed the last one, you missed out. We had about 250 people yeah. show up. Wow. Dancing in the front, in the bottom floor, in the back. DJ was great. So we'll be doing it again. We will have sangria. Yes. There will be some dance lessons. So it'll be a good time. Make sure you come out. And we also take donations. Volunteers are always welcome. Okay. And uh, we're just going to continue to grow and see see where it takes us. That's legit. Yeah. How, and how can people stay in touch with you? So with me personally, you can check me out on Facebook or Twitter at Edwin Lindo. Uh, but with Estelita's Library, we have a Facebook page yeah. that uh, will get uh, all your questions answered. And if you have any additional questions, send us a message and we'll respond pretty quick. Link in the description. Yes. As always. Cool. Last question. Uh, and, and this usually is our first question. If there was a book written about your life or a uh, documentary film about your life, what would the title be? What would the title be? Yes. Hmm. It would be called Beautiful Struggle. Nice. There it is. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. No, thank you. Yes. I appreciate y'all. Make Absolutely. sure y'all support the podcast. Give some love. Uh, this this is the, the community and cultural space that uh, we need to continue to build and you're sharing with the world in Absolutely. ways that not everyone has the skill to and so we appreciate you opening it up to us and, and the community. Appreciate it. Yeah. This is Edwin Lindo. You are listening to No Blueprint. If you liked what you heard, be sure to donate so we can keep going. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, and YouTube. So be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment. You have no idea how much it helps. We also want to know what you think. You can hit us up on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and you can even use the hashtag NoBlueprint. 
And if you're really down with the movement, you can join our Patreon account and become a patron, where you'll get exclusive content and limited edition merchandise. No Blueprint is powered by Ambassador Stories. We share stories of the people, places, and spaces that bring soul to our communities. No Blueprint is recorded at Ambassador Stories Studios and co-produced with me, Maya Aina. Hear more episodes of No Blueprint and get official No Blueprint merchandise at noblueprintpodcast.com.